welcome everyone to uh, a special episode of uh, Podcast of the Fallen. We are here with our second ever guest on the podcast today, uh, half of Smiley's podcast, the Malazan Encyclopedia himself. We have oh. Lee here with us. Hello. So Mora couldn't make it because um, festival on, well, the entire week is basically full of festivities. So her night's a bit busy. So I'm here instead. Happy to be here. Uh, we've met with uh, Nathan once more on, over on Smiley's, and uh, it's my first time here. I don't usually go as a guest on other podcasts, so <laughs> I'm like once over on Derek's, and they're very nice over there. So yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Uh, yeah, definitely. If you haven't, go check out Smiley's podcast. Um, they have been covering, I think you've covered all of the novels of the Malazan Empire, yeah. and you're currently covering the Carcanus trilogy, which... Yep. I think you might be like the first podcast to cover yep. those books. As far so, as I know, yes. Uh, and then if you have finished the series, I have an episode on their podcast where we talked about our favorite characters in each book. So and that was super stole all of mine. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you didn't have to let me go first. On every <laughs> I didn't, book, but I decided to be courteous and I paid for it. Um, but anyway. j- just yeah. to start off um, on the. I was scrolling Facebook this morning before I got on and on the Malazan Empire group on Facebook, uh, I guess Steven Erickson is attending a convention or like being on a panel at a thing in Barcelona today. And uh, in the meeting, he said that he is in talks with a company to make a TV series and that he couldn't say anything more. So it doesn't necessarily mean Malazan, but I don't see anything else that it yeah. would be. Yeah. So. That's just kind of exciting in the mod chat. The Malazan yeah. Reddit mod chat has been popping off since that dropped. So that's pretty exciting, though. Either way, I think it's going to be really good because, I mean, so yeah, far what so. I've read, I think he's going to do great no matter what he makes. Fingers crossed. But I think what we wanted to start out with, Lee, is what mm-hmm. we've done with all one of our guests so far is just kind of ask about your uh malazan journey how you found the right. series and then maybe how your podcast with mora got started right right so incidentally uh this is topical the first time i got into malazan was via a random recommendation from a friend with which we were trading um stories from dungeon and dragons and they wanted to run a one shot which was essentially based without necessarily letting anyone know because I didn't know and his players hadn't known about Malazan either. And he wanted to make a one-shot basically like two or three sessions based on the chain of dogs and completely without knowing what that was. I Googled Malazan I, I, from the cover because it's like Moonspawn above Pale. I figured, hey, this looks sci-fi enough. I figured, you know, like how are we going to D&Dify this without me knowing very much and what little he shared. Uh, the gist was, you know, refugee train, walking through a desert, fighting off an enemy army, which eventually just went off the rails to more fantastical elements. But the core point was uh, he was having trouble figuring out how to make an encounter. And yours truly, with no idea what he was talking about, just mentioned, hey, maybe you should make us like the party be a sapper group that blows up a bridge because we were in talks about that with what little details I knew. And um, like three or four months later, it was a summer, two years ago, 2021. Um, a couple more friends which I knew and held in high esteem recommended Malazan. I'm like, oh, I know. I have a few days. I can pick that up. I found Gardens. I read it in about four days. And the rest is history. <laughs> uh, Smiley's began over a year ago. I'm feeling old now. Um, <laughs> because Mora, 
Mora and I had known for each other about a few months by then, close to like six months. And a distant dream Mora had was to make a podcast. And a distant dream of mine was to make a sort of YouTube channel where I can just dump all my essays on, which uh, came to be known about a year after that, as uh, Smiley's After Hours. And in effect, those two things conjoined when we figured out that Mora hadn't actually read the novels. She'd read everything else pretty much, but not the novels of Mother Number. Um, so Mora at the time had already started the read-along. We were doing the Malazan read-along. I think we were finishing up Deadhouse Gate by the time we started. And so we did Night of Knives in August. It went shockingly well uh, for how amateurish the whole thing was. And, um, you know, about a year later, with immense support from the community, which we really did not expect, and I still don't believe it, to be honest, uh, here we are. Awesome. Honestly, kind of sounds like a little bit like how our podcast got started, like yeah. you guys and 10 Very Big Books and D&J's Epic Quest and all the other YouTube channels and stuff had made me kind of want to start one. And so when Matt was going to mm-hmm. start the series, I just kind of texted him and said, hey, do you want to do this? And he said, sure. Yeah, why not? I'll be able to think a little more critically about the books, yeah. which I think was fun. Yeah, it's been really fun yeah. so far. So yeah, we're we're here today to uh, talk about the, I guess, de- not the ending of Dead House Gates, but talk about Dead House Gates as kind of a whole. We kind of saved mm-hmm. our overall thoughts on the book. We saved that out of our last episode of the book yesterday so that we could kind of talk about it today and maybe also get mm-hmm. your perspective on it. So I don't know if Matt wanted to go first on that. What are your overall thoughts on Dead House Gates? Um, I really enjoyed the book. I think I said it a bunch of times. But like ever since the beginning, it like caught me off guard of just like, oh, this is uh this is different than uh, Gardens of the Moon. This is a lot better in just terms of writing, like uh skill. I I really enjoyed all of it. Um like thinking back, reading through, I don't think there was really many parts where I felt like um I was my time was wasted or the story felt like it had wasted spots. Um, so I feel like overall, I really enjoyed it just because it was really cohesive. All the different narratives I thought played really well with each other. And then the ending, uh, I think, catches a lot of people off guard in multiple aspects, uh, which I, it's weird to say, but thought it was well done. Like I enjoyed it um, and just think it sets up like a bigger narrative down the road. But I really enjoyed a lot of the different story arcs exploring different themes, you know, Felicin and Heberick and just their journey to becoming the leaders of a rebellion. And then you got Dewerker going along this uh, really depressing journey <laughs> through basically <laughs> just watching everyone get killed, but somehow saving the people, you know. And then it was really cool to see uh, the Mapo Akarium storyline of just like, their perspective on everything with being like basically immortals just journeying through. I mean, it was kind of fun just to see that. But overall, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was a lot of fun to read and I'm excited to read more of the the stories. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of uh, speaking of the ending, uh, so we, we read up to the end of chapter 21, which is chapter 21 is the fall of Coltane. And then yeah, yeah. I know. And then, okay. <laughs> and then you, you would know what chapter is which. Uh, and then we read the rest of the book where 10,000 soldiers get crucified. And I was like, okay, Matt, did you expect it to get worse? And not at all. He he did not. But I, I told him like, there was that meme going around the other week of how often do you think about the Roman empire? I, I think that the chain of dogs is my Roman empire. Yeah. 
what was your favorite character in Dead House Gates, Matt? It's a good question. I want to say I think I enjoyed Dealworker the most throughout the whole thing, just because he carried that amazing perspective of a historian and like a veteran soldier through the chain of dogs. And so, and that being kind of like the main focus in a lot of aspects of the, this story, I felt like, um, it was, uh, it was really cool just to see him and then just how he dealt and coped with a lot of the, the atrocities that kind of happened and then his perspective on all of it. So I really enjoyed his, um, storyline. And I think he probably was my favorite. I mean, it's kind of tough to say, cause I really enjoyed a lot of the other characters. Um, but I think Dewarker definitely stuck out to be the just the best because like as I like history a lot. Um and so just to see a historian's perspective on this and just like him imagining like thinking back to other wars and other events and like comparing them to this. Um I thought it was really cool to see. And then uh just I mean at the very end he finally got his uh, frustrations out on the nobleman um that was really satisfying and then he called out the the just all dude and uh then like said hey your plan didn't really work but it did so i mean i really liked uh kind of the fire he had as well against uh the enemies and rivals and he kind of didn't back down kind of stuck it to his course and stuck to his gun so i really liked it i uh i think lee would agree with you because i think on our episode sure. that we did for I sure think, i think you picked Dewaker as your favorite of dead house gates yeah yeah i mean Dewaker is such an interesting perspective um because you could very easily just frame it through list or lull or some average like soldier in the uh, in the seventh or the wiccans but instead you have this outside perspective who knows how this is going to end right he's seen such things he's a veteran soldier however many years he's a historian of virtually every campaign since the unifications he knows where this is going. He's not yeah. stupid. This is not possible normally. And then Goldin starts winning and he keeps winning. And then slowly, Dewiker himself starts suspending his own disbelief. And by the time he reaches Aaron, or at least the road to Aaron, he's halfway to believing. You know, there's passages like we haven't lost a single civilian in 48 hours. They're still somehow holding like 300 men versus a few thousand. And you've gone beyond his pragmatic. Let's be like, you know, a realistic view of things that this is going to fail and we're all going to die to transcending this view and sort of adapting the same view that so- most soldiers and most, especially most Wiccans have of Coltane of like this ascendant dude, this god among men who cannot be defeated. Uh, and this is, you know, a lot of uh, characters throughout the novel, especially interacting with Dewiker, go through this from the Tithansi in chapter five when he rides through and tries to find them uh, when they go to Hisar and he finds like the barracks are like barricaded and there's a whole ton of bodies outside the barracks, but like there's no Wiccan bodies there. So what gives? And then along the way, it's, I don't know. I feel it's a very interesting and deliberate choice to frame the narrative like that. Compare that to like Ganos, who is very much in the fighting in Guardians of the Moon. He's there, yeah. he's doing his thing, but that introduces his own biases because he can't be as objective because he doesn't have the necessary information. But Dewiker knows how this should play out and the fact that it doesn't play out like this is a weird startling thing to him and so when he believes you start to believe and you keep on believing and then when it finally strikes that oh no they're really not gonna make it it gets bad and they're like but at least they're, bad. they're there you know it's not gonna get worse and then it gets worse and then when duiker gives up we're like oh fuck well we're, this is done we're done it's <laughs> I'm, I just, I'm stopping I'm, i don't want to read it anymore stupid book i don't want to read this um yeah so 
the Wicker, the Wicker's the man. He really is. I mean, I'd say Bowden as well, but uh, he kind of he lost track of him partly uh, through the story. Yeah, you should have. I have never <laughs> seen anyone latch onto Bowden as much as Matt did, and it mm-hmm. was mainly after the reveal of who Bowden was, and then Bowden's death that Matt was like, "Why did this guy have to go?" Like, you don't have to reveal that cool information and then kill him. I was like, that was the most disappointing reveal that we don't get to learn anymore. Right. Uh, yeah. And then I think my favorite character this time, I will make a formal apology on uh, Smiley's podcast. I said my favorite character in Dead House Gates was Kalam, I think. I take mm-hmm. that back because I I didn't enjoy Kalam's storyline as much this book. Every time I got to Kalam, I felt like, oh, no, take me back to Felicin or Fiddler or Duiker. But what you were saying about Coltane. I think Coltane is my favorite in Dead House Gates now. And I think it's a really good choice by Erickson not to let us in his head. It leaves everyone one it leaves Dorker wondering what is this guy thinking? It lets you kind of start to believe in that idea that he's a god among men. Cause the whole time you're like, wait, Coltane planned another genius tactic that won them another impossible to win battle. Who is this guy? And then you get that reveal where he punches Gessler. And everyone's like, wait, Gess- so Gessler's almost ascended. If Coltane can break his face, what does that mean about Coltane? And uh, I, do- I love the building. And then I love the human moments that we get to see with Coltane, whether it's his short conversation with Dworker by the fire or um, that one where he accidentally demotes the sapper and he has no idea what to do and he's barely holding back his laughter. It's like, oh. So so this guy does know how to be like a human. He's just putting on for the army so that they don't give up. I think I finally fully understand why so many people latch onto Coltane and yeah. he remains one of their favorite characters. I think on that note, one of the most expressive succinct quotes is like nether going Coltane commands and we obey. That's all. There's no more there's no much more to it. He just he says do this and we do this. We don't ask questions. We're not here to ask questions. We do it because he's, because it's Coltane. That's all you need to know. Yeah, it's like the no, uh, no words. one Duiker's like, so you guys are the seventh. They're like, we're Coltane's army. Like the mm-hmm. Malazans start to identify as Coltane's men, which I thought was really cool and interesting to see. Yeah, Coltane kind of achieves the same status as Dujek in that sense, because all of Dujek's yeah. men identify as, I am Dujek's soldier. I'm not a soldier of whatever army. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm Dujek's, so... Yeah. Which uh, you'll get to see more, Matt, of Dujek in the next book. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, we have to take a whole pause, but I mean, it's all right. We already took a pause. Yeah, Matt decided to go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Coltane, I think, was a. Uh, he was probably one of my. He was probably like close second or third favorite character in that whole story. He was so cool. So I have to ask, where does Felicin rank after you finished the book? Ah. Uh... Well, she finally left behind her whiny ways, I feel like, um, as mean as that may be to say to someone that went through as much as she did. But uh, she's pretty cool by the end. Like, I I really liked uh, her progression towards uh, accepting the mantle of being like the, the leader of the rebellion. I thought it was really cool and interesting. So I think she's definitely up there in the top, like, five of my favorite characters from the book. I won't, I haven't thought through it too clearly. On who's like the other, like in the top five besides uh, Duerker and Coltane. So I'd have to give a little more thought to that. But she, by the end, I'm like, okay, I really want to see where her storyline goes. I mean, as the leader of this insane 
bloodthirsty rebellion. Like, how is she going to handle this, especially when uh, her sister's the opponent? So I was like, this is, uh, I like this turn of events. It's kind of cool to see. Yeah, that's uh, Matt's own character arc with Felicin has been interesting to watch because he started out <laughs> full of sympathy, slowly started losing some as the book went on, to eventually, I think, was mainly just annoyed. And then Bowden dies. And he gets a little more sympathy, and then she becomes Shaikh Reborn, and he's like, oh, this is interesting. I'm like, hey, there we go. We finally added something to her. Besides, I'm just rebelling against everyone that's trying to save me. We're just going to die. Which, like, all uh, right. Yeah, don't worry, Matt. I think that I think that arc of how you feel about Felicin is pretty typical for first-time yeah, readers. I'd say so. Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, I was really, I was, I was pretty happy to see that uh there's kind of like a termination of some of that uh, attitude of hers towards uh hey i'm the leader now i'm gonna tell people things what's up and i was like all right this is sweet she's in charge now let's see where this goes no notes no notes <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i just oh go ahead and I'm just anything I say, I'm just imagining both of you like, oh, he doesn't know this. He doesn't know that. No, no, no. But um, uh, yeah, I just no, think the, it's so funny. There's a tiny bit of that. But one thing that I really like about Book of the Fallen specifically is that each book is kind of self-contained. Yeah. And so it's pretty easy to talk about each book without having a super wealth of knowledge of what comes next. Pretty cool. Um, Lee, how long has it been since you read Dead House Gates? Uh well I finished it with along with the read along so I'm gonna have to check oh, that's really true. quick one moment uh I can't actually find it so probably about like seven or eight months ago I'd say probably something like that but yeah it wasn't too long ago and it was I reached all the way up to the crippled god I've not started it yet but I would say Dead House Gate and a reread is either top three or top four somewhere up like and as far as like the first five books are concerned it's probably the first among them so. Uh-huh. It's a really good book. Um, no notes. It's a really good book. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, it's um, it's also like one of the few books which I've uh, kind of resolved. I am not going to read again if I can help it because chapter twenty one and twenty two are traumatizing, man. Like, just yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just I can't yeah. put myself through that again. I can't. I'm sorry. Oh, see, I. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a masochist, but I like putting myself through stuff like that. <laughs> it Chapter 21 didn't hit me as hard this time because I looked ahead and knew that it was coming. But my mm. my time before this reading it, which I guess for me was also about eight or nine months ago, um, I forgot that chapter 21 was the fall. And so it just hit me out of nowhere. And I was I was I was a mess. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, Dead House Gates actually has been an interesting one for me because the first time I read it, I went, oh, that's a good book. I barely understood what the hell was happening at some points, <laughs> but it was a, it was a good book. And I liked I liked the ending. And then the second time I read it, I think I walked away from it going, that is a perfect book. Yeah. And then the third time I read it, it fell a little further in my rankings. And now I think I'd actually rank it like fifth or sixth. While, mm. while still giving it like a nine or a nine and a half out of ten, right? It's it's number one of two for me. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be fair, yeah, <laughs> that's my ranking so far. Yeah, um, I think, I think what 
has brought it down for me has been the has been Kalam's storyline, which I still mm-hmm. enjoy. But Matt and I were talking uh in one of our episodes about how his whole uh story his whole little mini story on the ship just kind of feels like Eric said was like, well, Kalam's crossing an ocean while all these other characters are doing stuff on Seven Cities. I'm uh, I'm gonna give him something to do. I was just thinking, I was like, yeah, I remember the boat. I was just like, some of the bits I was like, this, uh, this is a bit of a change of pace here. Like, this is very much like the side story of, uh, like maybe like the bonus episode in some season that the <laughs> animators were like, uh, we need just like one more episode to hit like the 20 we need for this season. Let's just throw this in here just to add a little fun. Cause, uh, yeah, I thought it was cool though, just to explore, uh, the life at sea, though, for a little bit. I thought that was kind of fun to see how Erickson tackled that. So for the most part, I enjoyed it. But yeah, it was a little strange to just be like, all right, and Kalan, he's just chilling on a boat for a little bit. You know, fight some pirates. I guess I'll interject. So speaking yeah. of, I guess since we're here. So I generally try to find the silver lining in most things, which can be very annoying. <laughs> uh, so the reason I think, at least narratively, this is is in the book beyond we need to get Kalam from point A to point B, which is one reason, uh, mm-hmm. the most obvious one. I think is that reasonably speaking, Kalam is dead man a dead man walking right there. And the fact that he's alive hints at something because I mean Pearl stabbed the fuck out of him yeah. when they actually reached port. He could have done that at any point because they lost track of time because he was permanently mockering everybody. So at any point he wished Pearl could just paralyze Kalam, stab him in the spleen, throw him overboard, Kalam's dead. The fact that he didn't do this probably speaks more to uh, both what the like the Empire's long hands, right? Because they could follow him from all the way where he left, where he landed in Erlitan, through to his delivery of the book, and all the way from Aaron to Malaz City. They were permanently tracking him. Everyone, well, at least everyone... Um, that mattered, so let's see Nandopper, knew where Kalam was at any given time. The fact that he still managed to reach Malaz City and speak to Lassine is both a testament to Kalam's prowess as a character, because the guy's a brute and he is a really good fighter. And also, <laughs> it hints at something more, maybe, ther- like, maybe, well, no, not maybe, Pearl really is that vain, that he really did does want Kalam to appreciate him and say, yeah, you know what, I could kill you, I would kill you, but it's you, and I want to see what you can do. Uh, Pearl is that kind of guy. Um, everyone else? I'm less sure. So I think part of the reason for why this filler arc exists is beyond the fact that, yeah, I mean, I like when Kalam kills pirates. It looks cool. It sounds cool. And when like they threw the guy overboard yes. to the sharks, that was cool. But at least narratively, I think it's a way to set up the fact that Kalam is way over his head. Like, way over his head. His justification is a bit flimsy. Like he gets to the scene, she asks him, "Why are you doing this?" Like, hang on, why am I doing this? Which is one thing. It's that for all their faults and for however poor, let's be fair here, the clause management of the whole rebellion was, because Kalam constantly thinks like throughout, like Kalam would have just nipped this in the bud, killed ten people, none of this would have happened. But certainly fucked this up because the people who were supposed to be taking care of this, that is the claw, are not taking care of this, which is a problem. Uh, but certainly could still track Kalam from where he landed in Seven Cities as an outlaw all the way to Malaz City, and still he managed to reach there. What does that tell us? Is a question. I'm not going to be the one to answer. I think Nathan knows. Um, <laughs> so 
is it an amazing arc? Not really. It does drag a little, but I think, at least in hindsight, it pays to question, like, why is he still alive? He shouldn't be alive. Yeah. There you go, Matt. You just witnessed the uh, Malazan Encyclopedia at work. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that was a really good explanation. Um, that yeah, some questions that I didn't even think to ask. So, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense when you asked that. I was like, oh yeah, why uh, why is he alive? Because I mean, I don't know if I ever fully questioned that, but sometimes I was like, how is he still alive? Like, what is what is he yeah. doing? Like, why is you're, he? You're in his POV. Yeah, and I'm he like, thinks it's hot shit. <laughs> yeah, but I I'm mean, just he... like, yeah. Why is he keep getting saved? There's a demon that saves him at one point. Then his uh somehow weird lover, uh, Manala, comes in to save him. A dog saves him. So I'm <laughs> like, I I did think at one point, like I think it was last night. I was like, yeah, no, he should be dead. But like somehow someone saved him. Like just, yeah. oh no. I'm like, there must be a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, part part of that is narrative because that's what yeah, happens when. Sure main yeah. characters need to stay alive um but also to your point lee about kalam thinking that he's hot shit he is hot shit because topper goes yeah dancer would have to be fair he is yeah, yeah. For sure. yeah so i i love that moment so much when topper starts talking to lacine through the corpse and she's like so call off the claw now and he's like uh sorry can't do that but i need him alive and he's like do you really expect the 20 assassins that are after him to actually win no like the literal god of assassins would quite hesitate to yeah. get in a fight with this yeah. guy. So like, I don't think you got to worry. Yeah, we we will see more of Kalam's badassery, but I love him just moving through the city, killing a guy by elbowing him in the back of the head of all things, killing another guy by just swinging a bag full of tacks at his face. It's like how Kalam is. Not what you think of when you think assassin, yeah. because he's yeah. I think he's like six foot tall and super muscular and just a brute. But he's also quick as hell and smart as hell. And he can creep up on anyone. He's pretty cool. He's pretty cool. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Uh, Matt, do you have a favorite moment in Dead House Gates? Ooh, this is hard. Oh, that's tough. And you can just list off a few, because I I don't think I could come up with one single yeah. favorite. Um, I feel like some of my favorite moments were when it was like reveal of like lore and history of some things. So I think uh, Ikarium's dad was a cool moment. Like it was kind of just like a, like it wasn't fully necessary for the narrative. I think in some aspects, but it was a really nice like exposition of. Hey, this is a crime. This is what happened to him. Like, this is why he can't remember anything. That one just comes to mind, I think, most just because we read it so recently. But uh, I think as well, I really liked um, this is probably a little weird, but when Felicin had to climb the the crystal or whatever, when they're trying to navigate the city and the other two just kind of get up without any issues. She's like, wait, you're telling me I just cut myself on that rock to get up here and you guys got up here with no issues. I kind of like that because I think it was a interesting moment of her character development of kind of just like i think it maybe humbled her a little in some aspects of like you can rely on other people maybe is something i thought of but could be a little off there i like that moment for a different reason um mm -hmm. i like it because she climbs up all the way and then Colt has a thought like god damn she is stronger than i will ever be <laughs> like she's yeah. way tougher than i thought 
Yeah. No, I think I think that that's I, I like that moment as well. because Culp is a sassy bastard. He just goes, "I'm surprised that those still have angles." <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like about that moment. Yeah. <laughs> no, it it's a great moment. I think and it really like speaks to a lot of different aspects of their characters. So, and I think just uh, I don't know. Oh, the this was such a cool battle that forget the name, but when they crossed over using the wagons as a an underwater bridge, and then blew it all oh. up. That was an amazing moment because all the sappers are like, we just use all of our ammunition. Mm-hmm. This is the this is such a sad day. And he's like, you you would think they lost their mom or something. <laughs> Using all the, <laughs> they've used all that. And I was like, yeah. uh, I think it speaks to their character and kind of adds a little more to them, which I think is awesome. And then uh, that was just like such a cool thing because, yeah, it was one of those moments you're like, how are they going to get across? Like, what's the plan? Like getting through three feet of water. It's not that hard. Like, I don't know. I've walked across a few rivers and it's uh, the deeper it gets, the harder it is to move. And so I thought that was a really ingenious way of that battle, like winning that battle. So um, those are a few of my moments, at least Probably have some others, but those are the ones that I got off the top of my head. I I had a few. Um, I mean, to be honest, most times the first thing when I that I think of when I think about Deadhouse Gates is the fall of Coltane. But this time Squint really stuck out to me um, about how he refuses to take the shot until I think it's Nether is just like pleading with him. And then he gets a couple other mentions throughout the book of Blistig thinks like heroism combined with murder like that would break anyone. And I just really hope that we don't find him face down in a ditch somewhere. So that really stuck out to me this time. Uh, I think as well, just the the night of the uprising, when we see Dewerker and the Marines go through it, we see it happening in the camp in Skull Cup, uh, and we just see everyone go through the horror of like an entire continent rising up against its its oppressors. Dewerker riding through the city and seeing all of the atrocities that were committed, and him thinking and knowing that this is going to scar me for the rest of my life, isn't it? And kind of his his reflections on trauma and PTSD throughout the book really stuck mm-hmm. out to me this time because he he's been through it before and he knows what's going to happen and he's trying to help uh list find a way through that that's really cool to me yes my turn uh so i guess nathan knows but matt in case you don't know uh one of my first calls to fame um especially in the mods subreddit was I wrote a whole bunch of pieces about why Lacine is not actually terrible. And one of yes. my main pieces of evidence was chapter 23 of Dead House Gates, which is one of my favorite scenes in the entire series. Um, because, well, because Kalam went like through, crossed three continents, instigated one rebellion, killed a whole bunch of fools, crossed an entire ocean, went through a city, killed 15 claws is currently bleeding out on the floor. And when he's asked, why did you do all this? He has like, yeah, why did I do all of this? <laughs> and just the rapid fire answers of like, am I permitted a defense? Go ahead. And it just goes off like, yeah, oh, you've prepared for this. Like, of course she has. She knows you're here from the moment you landed on seven cities. She knows you're coming. She knows why you're here. And Kalam turns... The reader, usually, from my experience, the reader doesn't buy into this. But looking back, it's really telling of the character of the Empresses, for reasons you'll discover later. But one of the quotes that have stuck with me since is, 
she basically goes, uh, I answered, I answered a need with anguish and despair. Um, an empire is worth more than any mortal life. And then Galam replies as a fucking own or something, including you. And she's like, yeah, including me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I just... brought that up in our episode that we recorded yesterday. God. Other than that, I think Baudin's death got me, especially oh, the second read. Yes. Because, you know, especially uh, armor can hide a child, especially a child. And that screwed me up. And of course, you know, I mean, Duker's death, like, got me bawling for 10 minutes in the fucking shower. So there's that. Which is why I don't read the book again, because I'm not <laughs> going through that again. So I guess it counts as my favorite scene, even though I hate it. Do with that information what you will. Yeah, that's that's why I was a little hesitant to say like the fall and like some of the deaths were my favorites because they're really impactful and amazing yeah. scenes. But I'm like, I don't know if I want to say they're my favorite just because of like how like kind of gut wrenching they are a little bit where you're reading it and you're just like, oh, this like I grew really attached to them and that's how they're going to that's how it's going to end for them. And so like because now the deaths in this book, like. It, I feel like it explored the theme of like war atrocities and like terrible deaths mm-hmm. really quite well because like everyone that died it was never like bowed in went up in flames literally and then Dewaker gets crucified up on some tree after watching everyone else die a bunch of painful deaths and so like I think that's like I was a bit hesitant to say because I mean I do really think those are amazing scenes but it's just because like I like how it hits you it's in the, the heart a little bit where you're just like, oh, that's so sad. Like, that's not it's not what I wanted or what I expected. So, yeah, I think uh, I think the only death that's kind of played lately in the book is because uh, even like all of the soldiers that die in the battles, there's always like Dewarker thinking about like the list of the fallen and honor the mm-hmm. dead and all of that. The only death that's played lately, I think, is the bartenders, the night of the uprising, where uh, Gessler and Stormy and Truth have a tab at the bar, and then the bar, like the whole building, collapses on the bartender. And Stormy goes, "Well, I guess Hood paid up his tab." God damn it, so, Stormy! <laughs> dark, dark soldiers' humor, but yeah, even even Culp, like things you're you're put off a little bit by the merchant that appears with four undead servants, but you're like, mm-hmm. ah, well, this might work out. And then Culp looks away mm-hmm. from him for a second, and he's sworn by rats, and he's dead. Yeah, just gross. Yeah, no, I mean, Culp. I think Lauren, the prologue of Deadhouse Gates, and Culp's death are like the first three instances where, like, this is not gonna be fair, is it? Like, the characters I like are never gonna have fun. Nope. Uh, yeah, poor Culp, man. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, it was a uh, Culp was rats, Bowden was flames, um, Coltane was speared and then hit by an arrow. Um, a lot of the soldiers were just killed in battle, but I mean. Uh, Duaker crucified, over ten thousand soldiers crucified. <laughs> like there's no, there's no easiness for anyone. Yeah. And then a lot of other people. Oh, then the the nobleman got kicked in the throat. That's a yeah. not I, a very pleasant death. I was about to say there are two satisfying deaths in this book, and they come within ten pages of each other. And it's when Duaker kills Nathpar by kicking him in the throat, and then like ten pages later, Pormquel gets beheaded because Corbolo Dom is like. Yeah, I'm not. He, I he. I'm not giving him the honor of dying with his soldiers. He doesn't deserve it, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say. And I made the comment to Matt yesterday. Like, it's funny how fiction makes us treat death in like a yeah certain way. And like, well, yeah. he fight. He got what he deserved. But yeah, 
I mean, Pornqual is responsible for the deaths of literally thousands. So I don't feel mm. too bad saying that he got what he deserved. Yeah, I think it should be in the reverse, though. Him pinned up on a tree, a slow, painful death, and everyone else just like a quick, like a uh, little bit more merciful. But I mean, he need, he wanted to make a point, I guess, and he's a he's not a very pleasant dude, I guess. So, yeah, I wouldn't say so. Yeah, he's not the kind of guy I would invite over for a night of board games. <laughs> he would not be on that group chat. Yeah, uh, one sec. Uh, just right. who got talking about who porn, yeah, yeah. porn qual. Uh, I think it's, I think it's about time we give an obligatory <laughs> fuck Malakrel. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He is the worst. I I mentioned this last night in a. I was like, he's the kind of guy. I'm like, Corvolo Dom. I you hate him, but it's because he's like meant to be hated. Like he's a bad dude. But Malakrel, he's the kind of guy that I just despise. Like yeah, like just. The worst because it's uh, the slimy, like uh, cowardice, I feel like they show and just like the two sided, like two faced stuff. I'm just like, wow, you're if you're going to do anything, at least do it with like a little more honesty because you got Corbal Adam over here is like, hey, I'm the leader of this rebellion. I'm a renegade fist. Everyone's going to die. How I'm going to say they're going to die. And so other guys over here is like, I tricked you. You know, you're not actually going to fight these guys. And I'm like, you're just the worst. I hate guys like you. I think one thing with Malik in Deadhouse case especially is that he, the way he speaks, like you have Krupp who speaks in a very idiosyncratic way and he can be a bit grating at times, but he's mostly meant to be empathetic, you know, yeah. like Malik in this book speaks like a, like Yoda on steroids or ketamine or something like that. The guy is just annoying. Like even the way he speaks is annoying. Yep. Uh, despicable. He like, he oozes slime in this book. Which oh, is yeah. very well writing. Very, it's very good writing. It's very annoying though. Yeah, to to the point where his teeth are like stained green yeah, or God, something what like the that. Fuck is that? And come it, on, it's like he's yeah. he's a normal human. Why are his teeth stained green? Because he is and... slime. It's just like part of him now. I mean, he's, he's of the I, warren yeah. of slime. I never actually thought of that. That's actually a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, this this isn't perfect, but it. A good way to describe Malik Rell is uh, my favorite line from Toy Story. You are a sad, strange little man. <laughs> that's uh, that's and accurate. That's, without the yeah. second part, which is, and you have my pity, because Malik Rell does not have my pity. Yeah, fuck nope. that guy. Not at all. He's the worst. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think one of the other themes of our episodes throughout Deadhouse Gates has been... Uh, Matt learn slowly learning more and more about Warrens, but at the same time becoming more and more confused about Warrens. Every time we learn something new about Warrens, Matt is like, "What?" I was like, "Why is that a thing? It didn't follow any rules I knew before." Ugh. They even shared me the the one meme, the oh yeah, the, the, the invincible meme of what? So when do we get to learn about Warrens? That's the neat part. You don't. I was like, yeah, yeah I mean. Which, strictly speaking, isn't true. You'll get a couple explanations, but yeah, the most concise explanation is like a few pages in book five. Yep, that's the most I can do. <laughs> it better be good. I'm hoping they're good. I don't imagine I'll have all the answers. I <laughs> yeah, no, 
just embrace the the lack of knowing and i'm slowly trying to but part of me just like refuses to give up on like i need to understand this i want to know how this works because part of me is like now what if i was in this world i want to be like the war master i want to know how these work and so that's why i keep thinking of it bugging me i don't know why but i think by the next book you'll probably have a fairly decent grasp on how they work overall like not the necessarily the intricacies of how everything works but you can tell this guy has this war in it, though she does this, and he does this because because his power is somewhat like this. Like you have Culp, who is a shadow. He has Manus, right? Or I guess the boat Warren, the boat repair Warren. <laughs> um, uh, so he's in way above his head, and he's like, okay, but I can't trick reality. That's not what I do. Like that's not if that's not a thing. I can't do that. But then he just wills it to happen. And he thinks, oh, I, I'm doing something like, like just a dragon bashes through and like, oh, hang on. I'm not the one that's doing this. <laughs> it's that. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah. By memories of ice, you have a much more concise understanding of, you know, that Warren does this specific thing and it is capable of such and such things because X, Y, Z. It's not written like in stone. It's not written in stone. Like this is exactly what this Warren does. But for the most part, there is some measure of correlation between what Warren that is. So like Manus, which Warren of Shadow has shadow powers. No duh. What does that mean? More, you know, correlation or before beyond he opens a hole in reality and then a whole ship vanishes through that somehow. No, it's more causal, I guess, than that, which is nice. It doesn't make sense, but at the very least, you know, you can tell why this happens, not how. But why? Which I think is very important with such magic systems because you're not you're pretty much never gonna know how. But why? By next book, you should have a fairly good grasp. Yeah, I think, and maybe this is putting words in your mouth, Matt. But I think lots of Matt's confusion came with like, yeah. So the Warrens are infested with shapeshifters, so we're gonna use Earth spirits instead. And Matt was like, so what? What does that mean? And I th- there were a few other things where we learned things about Warrens, and it. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. Tremolor was one. Oh yeah, there's a piece of a Warren that's been there's nailed a piece down of by a Warren. the South House. Part of me is just like, this feels like a Greek god thing where it's like, I'm going to worship this one, and I'm going to worship this one, and I'm going to get this power, but like, it's still kind of yeah. weird. Not, that's honestly somewhat fair, yeah. But uh, it's a loose connection I was thinking of. I was like, maybe that's one way you could describe it, but not, but... Yeah, no, because like the book, it would be like, yeah, no, I have this war and like I can do uh, I can, you know, kind of trick people using different images, throwing voices and stuff like that, or like making fire appear that it isn't real. I'm like, okay, so like that makes sense. And then like we'll get to another war and or like we'll get to Tremor and it's like, oh, this is a piece of a war and this one's broken and all this. And I'm like, you can break a war since when? I thought it was just like a like a place or like, you know, just like some place of power. And I was like, oh. I remember what got you the most confused is when we go, when they go into uh, the place with the Salanda and the Talon Imas appear and they're like, yeah, so this is curled Emerlon, the Elder Warren of Shadow, the uh, Warren that you use, Culp, and they call it Mayanus Rashan. They call it the name of two different Warrens that exist. And they're like, yeah, your Warren is the child of this Warren. Oh, yeah. I was like, since when was this a thing? I was like, so we got Warren spawn and other Warrens? I was like, ah. Is like paint. You're just mixing colors now. Yeah, kinda. But Oddly apt comparison. Like this is a 
like so is a warren a person a place a thing (laughs) (laughs) so just having it's like it's like this warren's like hey uh, i'm married to this warren we had a few kids and this is this is kind of their magical powers now i don't know i'm like this is (laughs) i'm not getting a good explanation here i'm getting more and more confused it's kind of fun but warren (laughs) the warrens are the friends we made along the way (laughs) (laughs) i was going to say the warrens are a human construct like time God, like it's confusing because in a way they are in like the way that people understand them and talk about them. Yes, but they're more fundamental to the world than that. Yeah, so, for like, sure. There is an elder shadow Warren, but what you call that doesn't matter to the Warren itself. You know? Yeah. The Warren's like, yeah, sure, you can give me that name. It's like <laughs> it's fine. I suppose another way to view it is like through sets. So the elder Warrens are like supersets, so they contain the newer warrens so because people can't access the larger warren they call that the child warren i guess would be able to describe it the mm. point is it's all convention because mages within the world also don't understand the, the metaphysics of how it works so they're kind of figuring it out along the way yeah uh, and those that do know aren't talking because they're assholes <laughs> i feel like quick ben's one of them yes <laughs> yes, yes he is um mike he that's one character through the past two books i'm like why i can we just get like just a few pages in his head of him like walking through like all right i'm gonna do this to do this and i'm gonna do this to do this it's coming in the next book yeah next book has a lot Uh, of that yeah yes finally next book has yeah you will i think you will really appreciate because the beginning of memories of ice i remember gives you so much info you're gonna you're gonna enjoy it I have a field day. I'm excited. In a manner of speaking, yeah. In a manner of speaking. But I remember getting there my first time through and being like, I feel like I'm getting like information and exposition. Like this is I have I didn't get that through the first two books, really. So Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to Memories of Ice. It's it's definitely in my top three of the series. I'm excited for it. Is it one of your favorites, Lee? I know you uh my first read, it was like number one until i got to the bone hunters like it was probably around top three yeah now it's um it's fallen a little because certain characters which i like in that has gates and certain themes that i like in that has gates are not present in memories of ice it explores different things and there's some aspects of the book which i just don't like however one thing it has going for it is it's by far and i think it's by far the most conventional fantasy novel among all 10 yes it's pretty straightforward like these are the good guys these are the bad guys like, gotcha. there's no grayness here because one side is so much worse than the other that you can't just say like, oh yeah, maybe they're the good guy. No, no, there's no, no. So it, yeah. it works for me. It's, it's nice. It's it's simple and you can afford to look at like how the world works. Uh, it also has a mo- some of the most epic shit in the books. You know, like, yeah, so there's that. It's a great book. It's exciting. I think... It usually ranks either like top one or top two, at most top three across the entire thing. I think it's top two in the most recent survey. I so think so. It's yeah. a very good book. A lot of people like it. Cool. Yeah, because I think uh, that's one thing I've actually really appreciated about this series, though, is the, the vagueness of uh, who's good and who's bad, because I'm like, it feels more like a, a telling of some real history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which I like. That'll be interesting. They're they're like the they're like the one legit bad guys in history where you're like, okay, yeah, no, they they were bad. World consensus, they were bad. Yeah. Well, even like in Gardens of the Moon, you get Lorne and she meets Tool, and Tool's like, oh yeah, the Jagu 
so bad. Like they were so evil. We had to lock race away. And race is like this terrible tyrant, like devil God that you're talking about for the whole book. And then you get to dead house gates and list starts having visions of the jagged. And he's like, yeah. So the Talana Amos broke every bone in this five-year-old boy's body and pinned him underneath this stone for eternity. And the jagged tried to reason with the Talana Amos multiple times and they just would not listen. And, uh, then you're like, oh, maybe, maybe even that's as more complicated than I thought. Yeah, I mean, what two hundred millennia or whatever they're saying can add a little bit of a some gray area and a little bit of <laughs> some simp- oversimplification of the story. Yeah, I think especially the next book's prologue will um certainly resonate with that. Yes. Getting ahead of myself. I should not spoil <laughs> things. I mean, you're, you're just typing it up. I'm excited. Yeah. We're about to read it in the next week, week and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Was there any like favorite overarching themes you guys had from Dead House Gates? Like, uh, I feel like we've talked I'm, about them, but so I feel like I cannot talk about Dead House Gates without talking about children are dying. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I almost hesitate when I say it out louder on the subreddit that it's like maybe my second favorite quote of the series because it's maybe the second most quoted thing in the entire series, but it it just hits so hard and it makes me think every time I read it, it makes me think about whatever atrocities are going on in the world at the time. So I think that's one of my favorite. I think it carries through Dead House Gates and then it continues on for the rest of the series as well. Mm-hmm. Um but also uh, Dewarker's reflections on the fallen and how at one point he's like, don't don't forget about the living because you're too busy grieving the dead or don't don't reflect too much on why did he die and not her and things like that. I just really like all of the all of the thoughts that we get throughout the book of what it's like to be a soldier in the midst of this and how you have to find a way to hold on to your humanity. And Duerker does that Mm -hmm. by walking through the medical train any chance he gets and remembering like this struggle against death. This is everything taken away, laid bare, just us fighting against hood. I really like all of that stuff. That's a very difficult question to answer because Nathan just took both of the most obvious ones. (laughs) Ah, well. Well, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, God. I mean... One of the more prominent questions, which I think the book doesn't even take a stance on, uh, which I'll get to why in a moment, is, is the rebellion justified? Now, the book doesn't concern itself at all with that, because the book itself takes a very humanistic approach to this. You know, the children are dying, but it doesn't matter whose children it is. They're dying. Who cares? But I think it's one of the more interesting approaches to imperialism, because the Malazans are colonists. They're here as conquerors and they have brought settlers to essentially assimilate different cultures. And those that do assimilate, cool. They get to be neat. Others aren't so lucky. And then you have a guy who's a Napan, and then you have a Malazan girl and some Falari just a little prick essentially orchestrating the entire rebellion who have absolutely nothing to do with any sort of uh, national struggle against oppression. They're pushing their own agenda. You know, Felicin has a thing against the boar, Corbol is an idiot, Malik's a <laughs> power hungry prick, and so on. And another question is if it is justified, then at what point do the atrocities cancel out the justifications? And for my money, again, the series, if it takes a stand, it's like, 
we're way past that point. Like any justification they may have had with what they've done, it's all gone. And then, in effect, it's the one of my uh, most memorable things is how different characters view the rebellion, at least from like the defending side, the Muslim side, right? You have Fiddler and Kalam, where like none of this would have happened in a Kalam bid. None of this. None of this. He would have just nipped it in the bud. It would have been done and done in two weeks. Instead, here we are with a big army marching across the entire continent, and now we have to put this whole thing down. You have Duiker, who has similar thoughts because, well, he was a member of the old guard, right? He was there with the emperor. He was his personal historian. He learned how to write and read along with at his um, behest. And then you have Bolt and Coltane, where, like, well, the short haired woman does not understand wicked ways, but the empire honors its debts. The empire does what it does. Dancer and Kelenved were able conquerors, but were they able rulers? And Dubiker gets pissed at that because, like, I don't fucking care. They were my friends. Which, yeah, they were. And she murdered them. Well, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but the overarching picture of how could these groups coexist? Or is the rebellion justified? If it is justified, do the atrocities cease the justification? And how does the book approach this? Well, Nathan already went into how the book approaches this with the children are dying quote, which encapsulates the whole thing. It's just, yeah, I don't care who is justified. I don't care why you're doing this. Innocents are paying in blood, and that's what matters because ultimately, who needs you know pages of history and economics and all that shit when children are dying? So, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful book, and I think I haven't even gotten to listen, which. There's a whole lot more log there, but I'm going to talk for like three hours more, so I'd rather not. <laughs> and I would rather leave something for Matt to say, because, yeah, we've kind of hoarded all the, the themes here. So, right. Matt, what have you? You guys put so eloquently. That's it. I don't have anything else. <laughs> no notes. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I I had some of the same thoughts of at the end of the book when he's like, and we're just going to kill 10,000 of these soldiers in like a really horrible, painful way. I thought, so you you are rebelling against them. You're just trying to get them out because you want your homeland back without an external, like an external power controlling you, right? And so mm-hmm. I just thought, I was like, that, is that really justified in that sense of like, like killing all 10,000 of them like that and like pursuing this train of like innocent people more or less? Like they've just been living there. Like they, they were told by their empire, like, Hey, you're going to go live here. And like for the past, I don't know how long this has been. Seven cities has it's been conquered in like a few decades, a few yes. decades. Yeah. So like they, like some of them have grown up. This is where their whole life is. Like, I think like that quote of the children are dying is like, just it hits a nail on the head. Cause it's like these mm-hmm. children, they may be Malazan, they may be this, but they were born and raised there. This is all they know is the world they were brought into. And so I think the the book really it asks those questions and then leaves it as an open-ended, like, now it's up to you to decide, which I feel like is um, a great way Erickson did it because, like, as a historian, that's how history is. It's like we go back and analyze and we're like, all right, is this, uh, what do we think of this, um, of these decisions? And I think it um, also, like, points out, like, the, the sense of, like, anger and rage and, like, the effect that can push and take people and i think Icarium's like the the flagship idea of that where it's like mm-hmm. in a rage he can destroy level of civilization essentially like he's super powerful but i think it it's brought back and actually shown through the rage and like kind of like mindless slaughter of 
the rebellion of them just like they're angry they just want to fight they're just looking to get out there and do as much damage as they can and it's their rage that causes like so many deaths and so many just horrible atrocities i think the book uh is really interesting in terms of like asking a lot of those questions like you've mentioned and then just being like now it's now it's your decision but what do you think like is this justified is this the real thing and then i think some of the smaller story arcs of uh, like Felicin was an interesting like exploration of like uh, like basically prostitution for a little bit. And then like how she's going to deal with those effects afterwards, like drugs and prostitution. And then how is she going to deal with that and cope with that as she's trying to survive? Is it like going to make her and change her into do something great? Or is it just she's going to be like lose herself completely? And so I think it explores some themes like that really well, which I thought was really interesting to read but. yeah i i think like going back to the children are dying quote you have that moment of kalam um in front of the encampment where they've just staked all of the children out and kalam's biggest feeling is i'm helpless right now and i hate yeah. feeling that way yeah um and it, it kind of reflects how a lot of us feel in the real world uh, and then of course you have apt who saves one and shadow throne it, to be fair, it is an act of compassion. Shadowthorne saves all of the kids. He does it for his own reasons because he's like, oh, I, I can use these kids for something. I'll find a way. But Apt, to be fair, has kind of grown a connection to Kalam and is like, well, Kalam wanted to save these kids. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to try to do that for him. Uh, and then you have that moment of Cotillion appearing in the Shadow Warren with Panic and Apt and uh, just him, Panic as a child would feeling like he was punished because he didn't stay close to his dad and Cotillion yeah. being like, no, it is not your fault. It's not your dad's fault. He did everything he could. This is the act of some evil people. And he gets a little emotional at one point and says to act like part of the reason I ascended was so that I could escape these horrible feelings of humanity, the but change of feeling. I, yes. But, but I want to thank you for the reminder. And that's just yeah. a really beautiful moment of, you know, if if the god of assassins is being like, okay, this is this is too much, guys. Like maybe maybe it's time to take a closer look at everything. That whole scene with the children and then Shadow Throne saving them, I was like, like we read that so long ago that I kind of forgot about it a little bit. But thinking back, I was like, oh yeah, that was another one of those terrible ones where I was just like, they're kids. Like this is this is what you're doing to them. And so when Shadow Throne saved him, I was like, hey, he's not too bad. I mean. Yeah, always seemed a little skeptical or a little sketchy to me, but I mean, he at least cares about the kids. So, yeah. Uh, there's a Manal and Kalam weird love arcs. <laughs> I don't hate it. Oh, I, I don't like hate it. it. I, like it. I, I think it's I... fun and I enjoy it, but I just think it's funny just how it all happens because I'm like, that yeah, feels yeah. like two strong-headed people are just like, for some reason, like, I'm attracted to this. <laughs> And it just like plays out, which I think is funny, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I almost feel like a theme of this book is people not being who you thought they were, whether mm. it's Bowden turning out to be a Talon who was sent to protect Felicin, and then he was just a real asshole at some points. Um, but him turning out to be who he was, I had another, I had another. Th- one I had another example and I can't remember I mean, for the life of yeah, me. Yeah, that's what it is. like what you basically said is what Bowden says to Felicin when he dies. You were not who I thought you were. And yeah, you dies. aren't who I thought you were. Felicin turns that's out that. to be stronger 
than I think Heberick and Bowden thought that she was. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, by the end of the book, I almost feel like Heberick admires Phyllis in uh, a little bit. Just maybe that's mm. not the right way to put it, but he's surprised by her and she constantly takes him aback with how much she understands and how like some of the wisdom that she's gained through her trauma. He's like, Oh, maybe, maybe we do understand each other a little bit. <laughs> what was, Oh, you have Salkalon turning out to be Pearl, of course. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. an obvious one. Lacine turning out to not be the evil empress that Kalam thought she was this whole yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool. I think, I mean, I can't go on just the comics that has gates, but the stark transformation of like how you view a character based on their perspective from every motherfucker and their mother hates listening that is the moon because you have Lauren who the only person who's like vaguely sympathetic to her is brainwashed to like an extreme degree. And then you have yes. like in Dead House Gates, pretty much every POV dislikes her. Uh and the few people that offer counterpoints are shut down because people get emotional. That's fair. And then like Alam comes up and like oh, I was chasing a ghost through three continents. I did all of this. Turns out it was just a mortal woman. Yeah. Well, and even and the same uh... is true of like, okay, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, no, like we brought up Phyllis and we brought about it and brought up Salgalon, but characters differ a lot based on how you perceive them. And I don't remember if we get Herboric's perspective on Phyllis at the end of the book. Uh, I don't believe so. No, I, think I don't it's... remember. Mm-hmm. I think we I think we get Heberick's perspective like twice. Once because in the prologue I remember, and once at the end. Yeah, yeah. I remember he goes, uh, I wanna come home to Fenner at the end of this book. Yes. I don't remember if he thinks about Felicin in that POV. Uh, um, I don't think, I think so. so. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, um but yeah. I mean, god damn it. Well, I, I blew that, didn't I? <laughs> well, there goes my paradigm. <laughs> I, what what I was gonna bring up as far as Lacine goes is even in that very first meeting in the very first command meeting in Hisar, Bolt brings up the possibility to do work like, do you think Lacine is lonely? Because she maybe she felt like she had to take over the Empire from Kellen Vet and Dancer, and as part of that, she had to get rid of people that were her friends. Do you think maybe that's had an effect on how she views the world? And like maybe she's lonely, and Dorker's like. Nah, he thinks about it for a second. Is like, <laughs> no, <laughs> nah. I, I, I choose to hate her anyways. <laughs> I mean, it's it's easy to hate governmental leaders, especially of a conquering empire. I think the worst of them. Going along with this theme of when Coltane first gets to Hisar, you've got all of the command being like this, like this savage horse warrior. He doesn't understand politics or the situation here. What's he going to do? Like he's just some backwater fist that Lacine sent because he's her only option. And then they slowly start to be like, oh, yeah, Coltane is like the best. Now, do I think he's as good of a general as Dujek? Maybe not. But I mean, but I don't know. We don't see he, he, a lot. We haven't seen a lot of Dujek generaling yet. No, not yet. But Dujek has like years mm-hmm. of experience, so maybe the differentiator. I think it's a bit unfair. Well, I guess unfair is not the right word because Coltane's strategy is picked out for him beforehand. That's fair. Right? He only has fair. one thing to do, and that is run the fuck away through a very predetermined route because he can't go anywhere else. So 
everything else just falls to tactics, and he just it's masterful. If you have Sakala Crossing with the Matt brought up when they blow up the bridge, you have Gelo Ridge where they sacrifice a horse to make their what should have been light cavalry into heavy lancers, which is just what like if you have seen or heard of any horse cultures, they are either one or the other. You don't usually get both. You don't use unless unless like chivalric Europe or something, but then you wouldn't have <laughs> light cavalry in the sense of the Wiccans. Yeah. You have a more like support role. And Dubiker like expands on this. Like, do you know how to wheel? Do you know how to ride information? Do you know how to charge? Do you know how to do all of this? This is an uphill charge while you're wearing heavy armor with horses that haven't been trained for this. You're gonna die. And the fact that they don't die is impressive enough. And Vathor crossing, Vathor is even like when it's a complete disaster because Nathbar is an idiot. Yeah, let's, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> and Sorma dies. Even then, it's like the Wiccans charge with like, what, a thousand men that turns the tide and allows our fugitives to escape. He, like from there on throughout, he runs out of tactics because at some point they just run out of rations. So they have nothing more that they can do. It's just grueling man-to-man fighting, and even then they still manage to get there. So he's not so much a general as he is a warrior, and he is a goddamn good warrior. That's true. Maybe in the in the style of Marvel's What If, maybe that's mine for Deadhouse Gates. Is what if Coltane got there, got to Seven Cities earlier, and was able to run the campaign against mm-hmm. the rebellion? What would that look like? It would be a pretty cool fight. I'll tell I you think that much. I think Dewarker thinks at one point like. It's near the very beginning of the Chain of Dogs when he still has the vast majority of his soldiers. But I think Dewarker thinks at one point, like, you know, I think if Coltane, like, left the refugees behind, he could probably end this rebellion pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, Coltane is too full of honor to leave innocence behind. Yeah. Right? That's something we didn't even bring up. I I should have thought about it. But yeah, it's another one of those questions, like, why does he just leave the refugees? Because, you know, he has, what, 5,000 Wiccans, 5,000 of the 7th. Reasonably speaking, he can siege a single coastal city, get reinforcements, get to Aaron, beat the shit out of the entire rebellion. But he doesn't want to do that because that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. And just, I don't know, man. Like, I could just sit here and fanboy over Colting for 20 minutes. But <laughs> I think we've done so enough already. Um, yeah, we have. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Because I have a few things, um, but you know, it's like tangentially related to the books. Yeah, um, I think one of the other things I wanted to bring up, and this is one of the last things that I have, is, uh, and we we just talked about this last night when we recorded our final episode. But I love how, okay, two things. One, I love how seamlessly Erickson weaves between the humor and horror, mm. um, like you we get like Dewerker is super depressed and he and Lowell I think have this beautiful conversation about dealing with trauma and mm-hmm. how the way to deal with it is sleight of hand and if you can find yourself laughing and crying in the same moment that's that's how you know and then we get the scene with the sappers where Coltane demotes the sapper and it doesn't somehow it doesn't feel out of place that they're all mm-hmm. like fighting to keep from cracking up laughing and Lowell looks over to Dewerker and says Slight of hand. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I really appreciated. Uh, and then just how Erickson poignantly like puts a period on these terrible moments of atrocity with like small acts of compassion. Like mm-hmm. Mappo and Akarium are there at Aaron Way seeing all the bodies, and Mappo's like, you know what? 
I'm going to save these dogs that somehow survived the fall of Coltane because it mean because it means a lot to the soldiers that he met to Gessler and Stormy and especially Truth. And then he wakes up Akarium and Akarium is like, uh, Mappo says, I'm sorry I couldn't heal you more. I used my last elixirs on two dogs. And Akarium's like, Akarium doesn't resent it at all. He's like, they must have been good dogs. So just, oh, just moments like that, like it, it almost like it, I don't want to say like, how do I want to phrase it? It like puts, it puts a fine point on like, mm-hmm. like the, the biggest acts of evil can be balanced by like small acts of compassion and good. Yeah. Um, Anyone else? Should I, I geek out? I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah go, unless Matt has anything, I say, go ahead. I don't have anything. You're good to go. Right. Um, so we brought this up a bit earlier, but so a bit of a trivia question, um, question, I guess, is the explicit basis of the chain of dogs has been the British retreat from Kabul, which unlike the chain of dogs, uh, which lasted six months and covered a whole continent was about half the country and ended in slaughter in about 11 days. (laughs) But one thing I couldn't help but notice is the constant well not constant but the the alludements to the roman empire like especially uh one thing i thought of a lot is like version jetterix in gaul and Boudica in britain uh so version jetterix was like the leader of the gauls of basically the last single united gallic resistance movement um he was caesar's greatest opponent in the gallic wars and inevitably he was handily defeated there was no big retreat from the area um but he gave them the run for their money for years. Uh, and he also, you know, because the Gauls weren't particularly on friendly terms with the Romans, uh, who were settling on their lands, atrocities occurred. Britain was even more so because Boudica, because there was one army, it's very, it's oddly similar, which is why I can't help but think like there must have been some inspiration. So without getting into too much detail, uh, Boudica was elected like the tribe queen of a united. Uh, Picts? Who would be Picts now? Um, well, whatever. A United English, Proto-English, whatever the tribe was, I can't remember what it was. Um, army? Which basically ransacked the living shit out of Roman Britain. And there was one army to speak of under General Paulinus. Paulinius? I don't remember. Something like that. Uh, and nearby, there was stationed another large army um, in the garrison, which when messaged, refused to actually depart. They sent like 200 slaves to put down like some minor revolt. And they got absolutely slaughtered, by the way. Uh, Boudicca's rebellion was particularly remembered because of its romanticization by later historians like Cassius Dio, who does have a very um, interesting penchant for building things up. And the way he describes the atrocities of the Brits is like bordering on comical. They were terrible. Like, I don't want to understate just how awful the things that Boudica and her Brits did, Britons did to the Roman settlers. But the way he describes it, like Cassius Dio describes it, is like, dude. Dude. <laughs> um, and ultimately, the way the campaign ended was they were chased all the way up to North Yorkshire or around there. And the alternative was either to stop and turn or go into Scotland where they would be killed anyway. And so there's a scene like, okay, well, I guess we're fucked. I guess we're gonna die here. So they turn and they make their stand. And well, unlike Colton in the seventh, they actually do win. Uh, oh, 
which is nice. But it's very similar because, again, the way it's built up in the future histories, right? Not necessarily in the moment, but it's very flowery, very romanticized. Like, Poblins gives this big speech about... I don't remember what the speech is about. I'm sure people can find it if they like, but... I wonder how different things would be if some, if like a historian had actually lived through these events would give a truthful representation of how they were. Because both Cassius that wrote about this, and I think Tacitus was the other guy that wrote about it, like lived 100, 200 years after the fact. And I'm very curious as to how different these events would be portrayed if they were portrayed through a contemporary historian like Dubiker, which is why I'm quite partial to Dubiker's perspective because of that specific thing you get an honest portrayal of their atrocities on both sides because there's a lot of fucking bodies on Hisar's barracks. Um, and yes, it wasn't pretty. So, yeah, ultimately, lots of different historical allegories and parallels from the Chain of Dogs and the Mazan Empire, which I think is a very interesting point uh, to discuss, or especially in the future as the books go on. So I feel like this mad to like, mention historians a few times. I figured... Maybe I would bring this up. So if you guys have any thoughts, I'd be glad to hear. I think you're like wondering about what if there was like a contemporary historian that lived through it. I mean, we see that. That's why Coltane gives Dewerker the vial, right? Yeah, because he exactly. says, you, you're more important than me. This story needs yep. to be told. And we even see like minutes after they've gotten to Aaron, Pormqual is blaming the death of all of the refugees that died on Coltane and like trying to turn him into he and Malik are already trying to turn Coltane into the bad guy. And it's Mm -hmm. going through the ranks and Blistig says, yeah, it's troubling some people, even though they just witnessed the fall of Coltane and what he did for the refugees. And that's just history is malleable and the victor writes history and we can never be absolutely sure that what we think happened in history actually did happen that way. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just because language and words are fucked up and change with every generation and stories get passed down and don't stay the same. Yeah. And that's why I really think Duiker was such a cool part because he brought in like that kind of trained eye on it like where he's noticing certain things and past experiences. Cause I do think if Dewicker didn't survive or like, wasn't able to like find a way to try and help preserve what actually happened, you'd get Porm call and Alec Roll being like, Hey, no, Coltane is actually the bad guy. And then that would be the change perspective on the history. And then people be looking back at like Coltane wasn't a great guy and things like that. And like the chain of dogs was like uh, just a, accident that happened that didn't need to happen and it would have altered a lot of ways that have been viewed and so i think uh that's why i did appreciate duiker so much is because he tries to keep the facts straight and be like no this is what happened and then leave it for interpretation and i think that's Mm -hmm. what we should look at history as is just like the way kind of this book has presented is like here's what actually happened like it like at the time this is kind of what happened this is the decisions that were made not all of them are probably going to agree with your viewpoints now and like how you view the world, but at least we know like Dewicker with him writing it or like telling it in this aspect, it's uh how I say it? it's a, uh, a perspective of just trying to get the facts across and like mm-hmm. the, and just comment on like, and then his comments are more just like, yeah, no, this is, there's a lot of atrocities that happened that didn't need to happen, I guess. So. 
but I do appreciate the the cool notes on uh, the history there. I'm not too familiar with a lot of uh, world history and some of those aspects, which uh, mm. I've been trying to rectify the past little bit, reading on a little more histories of other Very areas. Because Malazan nice. uh, has inspired me because I'm like, man, I really don't know a lot about some of the history out there. So that's some cool, some cool things to learn. Yeah. Part, part of that is where we live and all the history we get is America. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much else. I don't know if you guys have anything. Leave, but... uh, we've uh, pretty much exhausted the whole thing. Yeah, I think. Yeah. In conjunction with what we you guys have been talking about all this time throughout the, the book. I don't have any more notes. I think I came a bit unprepared. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been I mean, a blast I, for sure. Yeah, I did. I came pretty unprepared too. I just wanted it to just have a normal conversation without a ton of super prepared. Like, let's get to yeah. these bullet points about Deadhouse Gates. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me pull up my PowerPoint on uh, Deadhouse Gates. We're going to discuss <laughs> each of the key points. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's funny how we can do like eight hour and the hour and something episodes on a few chapters. And then we talk about the book as a whole. And it's like, well, then we're talking about the book as a whole, and then it still goes for about an hour and something. I, no? I got none. Nope. Yeah, we got enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I guess if we have nothing else, um, just thank you again, Lee, for coming on. Thank yeah, you. it's been a pleasure. It was a yeah. lot of fun. We'll uh, we'll have to have both you and Mora on at the same point at some time. Um, maybe when we finish Memories of Ice or some point like that. Yeah. So. Um, I just really like having these discussions about the book as a whole because when you're in the nitty gritty of the chapters, sometimes it's hard mm-hmm. to pull back and see how it all yeah yeah uh, yeah overviews sure. and connects. But uh, yeah. yeah, thank you once again for coming on, and uh, listeners, I guess we'll see you next week with Memories of Ice. Yeah, Ooh. thank you for having me, and uh, enjoy Memories of Ice. It's a great book. Thank see you. you then. Thanks for thanks for joining us. It was a lot of fun.